they are coming from something, they are coming from a trauma, from hard life to go safe a spot and just build up their life and to understand the meaning of the home one more time for themselves, for their kids. Welcome to Beyond Soundbites. This narrative podcast series shares the voices of displaced people in order to remind fellow faith-driven refugee supporters that listening to those for whom we advocate is critical. It reminds us that God created every single person who becomes displaced and loves him or her with a depth we cannot comprehend. I'm Jacob Mao. You're listening to episode two of six in this series. Today, we meet a Farsi speaker who goes by the name Peter. The first words Peter shares with me come in a brief down-to-business email, a few lines of text threaded through with longing and hope. He's an Iranian living as a refugee awaiting resettlement in Turkey. A mutual friend connects us in August 2017 to ask Peter if he'd be willing to share his story with me when I visit them in November. Peter replies in his email, Hi everyone, this is Peter. I already have two interviews on YouTube and on CBN. I'd like to do that, and if Jacob is going to broadcast it, I'm on board. In his love, Peter. P.S. Hi again, I should say, I'm praying that by that time I would be gone from Turkey. Blessings. A couple weeks later, we talk on Skype. After 10 years working in domestic resettlement in the U.S., it's the first time I've ever talked with a displaced person on the other side of the process. Hi, Jacob. Hi. How are you? Good. Have you had your coffee or not yet? Peter's story contains a sequence of events that lead him into conflict with family, governments, humanitarian systems, foreign policies and their driving ideologies, also conflicts within himself and conflicts with God. This is only one telling of a hundred ways to share the story, but we can at least start our listening at the right time, long before Peter takes on the label refugee. He was born in the mid-80s in a town called Nahavan. So yeah, actually, uh, Nahavan is a mountainous area. It is west of Iran, maybe four hours or five hours or something like that, 300 miles far from the border of Iraq and Iran. Let me give some memories. The, during the Iraq war, actually, Iran and Iraq war, uh, my mom was pregnant and my mom had me in her womb. So anyway, she said that whenever the siren happens or something, I think I get so scared or something. When I was born, still there was a war between Iraq and Iran. As soon as when I was a kid, I was, for example, two months, three months, or five months. As soon as the siren started, for example, the red alert started in Nahavan, I started crying for that. Because at that time, when there a lot of sirens happened when my, my mom was pregnant with me. The Iran-Iraq war lasted eight years and left hundreds of thousands dead. It came on the heels of massive cultural upheaval after a Western-backed secular government was overthrown in 1979 and replaced over time with a system of rule based on Islam. The chaos of Peter's homeland planted a restlessness in him before he was even born. But aside from the air attack sirens and the sudden death of his father from a heart attack when Peter was very young, he described a peaceful childhood growing up with his mom and two older brothers, aunts, uncles, and cousins. We had a home. It, was, it had a full floor. And yeah, in our yard, we had some cherry fruit. 
And in summer, I use uh, all the time I water them and use the cherries. Days and afternoons and evening used to go play with uh, my my with the kids who were who were in our neighborhood, hide and seek, cycling, something around I don't know eight hours or seven hours a day outside of the home in summer. Yeah, my aunt used to live there at the because we used to go to her house and I had the cousin same as age as me and I remember do remember that we used to sleep at their house or my cousin cut could come and sleep at our house. Sometimes I miss that days. And maybe 10 years later, I would miss these days too, I don't know. The village offered certain comforts in the presence of extended family, but the pressures of being a widow in a smaller town and the desire to have better opportunities for her kids led Peter's mother, Esther, to move her family to the capital city, Tehran, when Peter was in fourth grade. Her move accomplished what she intended, it also set in motion a larger journey for herself and her sons she never could have imagined. They took advantage of the opportunities in the big city. Peter took swimming lessons, got his black belt in karate, the schools were better. At 15, Peter started English classes five days a week after school. His brothers had both moved to Europe by that time and they encouraged him to learn another language to broaden his range of opportunities. At that time, all students were required to take an entrance exam for university. The higher you scored, the better school you could go to. Peter scored well and went to a good university where he studied English literature. All that sounds normal, like it could be happening in any modern Western city. But Peter stops at one point to address the vast differences of culture and worldview between his world and ours. The way of growing that we grew up in Iran is totally different from a Western guy or Western people. Yeah, it's totally different. 180 degrees, totally different. Someone on the other end says something to Peter. He laughs and then gives a specific example. He says he was never in a classroom with male and female students together until college. We have no co-ed or mixed classes until we get to the university. As soon as we got to university, oh my goodness, it was my, it was my first time to be in a co-ed classes. All the guys were thinking they are teenagers, I don't know say something to the girls, because we had never seen that. <laughs> Just at universities, the classes, or I don't know, they started being coded, yeah. This leads Peter into a diatribe about post-revolution Iran and his generation's place within it. It was a generation that we called it, I don't know, the generation who were lost or something like that. I don't know how can I translate it in English. It means that, that they are burned their burnt generation. It means that they just wasted. Anyway, because whenever we came, something happened. When we were born, Iran had a war with the Iraq. When we grew up, I don't know, the army service become compulsory for all of us. When we wanted to go to university, entrance exam happened. He goes on to say the power structures use Islam to instill fear and wire people's brains from childhood. He says it's a country of 75 million people controlled by a regime of 100,000 elites. He says that many, especially in his generation, have felt the oppression and the emptiness, gone searching for something better, and encountered Jesus along the way. This is what happened to his family, beginning with his brother. Years before Peter started university in Tehran, his older brother, who had since moved to Norway, started believing in Jesus. 
He was not happy with Islam. He didn't like Islam at all, but he had a plan to change his religion or something. He said, Islam, I don't know, doesn't make sense for me or something. Then he started searching, searching, and first he wanted to be, I don't know, atheist, then he wanted to be a communism, to be in a communism party, then, so he, then he founded Jesus. Peter and his mother weren't happy about his brother's decision, mostly because they were scared for him. So I remember that when he became a Christian, me and my mom tried to ignore him, reject him, because we were really scared of that, what, to, what would happen to him. Because we knew that we learned that at the school from the early ages at the school, or in the mosque, we learned that, okay, if you convert from the Islam to Christianity, the penalty would be death for you. So my mom stopped him really badly to not talk about Jesus, and I told him that, keep your face for yourself. His brother became part of an underground church and he started sharing material about Jesus with Peter and their mom. Their mom rejected it, but in time, the stories started to challenge Peter's paradigms about the nature of God, bringing conflict to his inner world and his sense of identity. In Islam, I also learned that, okay, we cannot, we cannot say God is Father and God is love, or we are his son or something. Not that this is something disrespectful in Islam, and yeah, we... This is something that we cannot digest that at all. Anyway, that's why I become really, really curious. As w- curious why Christianity is talking about all the time in the gospel was mentioning God. God is Father. He is love, love, kindness, love. In Islam, it's not like that. Hand for hand, I don't know. Hand for hand, eye for an eye. But. But yeah, when I was reading the gospel, I was so confused why it's not like that. Jesus was saying that if someone asks you, I don't know, to walk with him for one mile, walk with him two miles. If someone asks for one shirt, give him two shirts. That's why it's so interesting for me. Then, yeah, then I was so confused and I asked God, please show me the truth, which one is the truth. If you are real, if God, you are existing now, please show me the truth. One night, Peter had a dream. It was kind of Armageddon that I was on the roof of my house, my house with my brother and the sky was red full of ashes in the sky suddenly I saw Jesus with a white robe he came and grabbed my brother then I started crying and yelling at him and I told him why, are, why aren't you taking me why are you leaving me alone as I was crying and suddenly he back again with a white robe and he left my brother next to me and he said one day I will back, I will back again and I will grab you and your brother at the same time again. When I woke up, I saw that my pillow got wet because, uh, yeah, because I was crying during that dream. I was so scared and yeah, because I felt really it was Armageddon. Nobody was around me. I don't know. It was kind of a scary scene for me. Yeah. Then I woke up and I called my brother. The dream was a turning point in Peter's faith journey. He had grown up understanding God as a distant monster, an executioner waiting to judge you when you die. But as he found assurance Jesus was alive and calling out to him, and as he studied the New Testament with a friend of his brother who led house churches in Tehran, his faith grew. Today, I'm with Peter in person in the town in central Turkey where he's lived since he came in 2013. 
Since our first contact in August, Peter's gone from lines of text in an email to a voice on a Skype call, and now a man in the flesh, sitting across from me with a microphone pinned to his button-up shirt. His scooter helmet sits on the table next to us. In person, Peter's friendly, quick to joke around. He calls me brother. At times, he's also melancholy and pensive. By the time we sit down for a formal interview, we've had about a week to hang out together. We pick up his story where we left off. He talks about what changed when he began living into his new faith in Jesus back in Tehran. In the beginning, it was kind of transition for me because I didn't know that new people also got to go to church. But the more I used to spend time with them, the more I got to know them better and better. And they become really, really safe people and safe spot for me. And once or two times a week, we used to meet each other. It was really good. It was really something like brotherhood relationship and you know, like your sister, like your brothers. Yeah, Just I feel really safe and secure with them. From Norway, Peter's brother connected him with a friend still living in Tehran who became Peter's mentor. When I became a Christian, we, I used to go to his home and then for one month he started doing uh, Alpha courses with me. Alpha courses is um, was his Trinity, who was Jesus, who is God, who is Son, who is Holy Spirit. Many questions we had as I was reading the Bible, I had questions. What does it here mean? What does it here mean? His mom responded to the news of Peter's new faith better than she had when her eldest son left Islam to pursue Jesus. My mom knew that, okay, I became a Christian, but she didn't talk to me about that at all. She knew that I'm going to go out, hang out with my friends every Friday. And my mom was a religious lady, lady but she knew that, okay, I'm going to hang out with some healthy people. That was good enough as a mom. Okay, my son is going to hang out with some healthy people. That's enough for me. After a year or so, his mom trusted Jesus too, along with a couple other relatives. Peter shared about his faith with some of his trusted friends and close family, but beyond that, it was dangerous. The deeper he and his mom moved into their new faith identity and community, the more at odds they were with their own society. One family, Peter referred to as super-religious, required certain precautions. They used to come to our home, and we had a cross on the wall. We had to remove them whenever they come to our home, maybe because we knew that they are going to be in problem, or, I don't know, they could have been against us or something like that, yeah. Once I remember, we had the Jesus photo, but we didn't remove that. We kept it in there, and they came to our house, and they asked us, Are you Christian, or why, why do you like We said, Yeah, we love him. He's a good guy. And they said, yeah, he's a good prophet. And they said that, yeah, Jesus is a good prophet. Because in Iran, they do believe that he's one of the good prophets. And we didn't say anything to them. Because we knew if we were going to start talking to them, oh my goodness, we didn't know what's going to happen. Because they are super religious people. The danger extended beyond neighbors to the authorities as well. So every Friday evening, we, as soon as we got to the underground church, we had to turn off our phones and remove our batteries too. Because we, were, we knew that the intelligence service of Iran can overhear us. I remember in 2009, there was a kind of uh, presidential election in Iran. And in that presidential election, cheating happened. And it was a protesting people. And the government was, was crushing all the people, the police officers. I remember that we didn't have any church for nine or ten months at least. In 2012, the dangers intensified. 
Over the course of eight or nine months, several things happened. Peter found out from his mentor that his mentor's pastor had been arrested without bail, and it started a chain reaction. After three weeks, I found out, wow, my mentor has left Iran. He just called me, I'm leaving, bye. I was surprised what happened. Then he, I got an email from him, yeah. No activity, nothing, nothing to stop everything. It was something weird is going to happen. And I told my mom about that. Not long after that, another leader in the group of house churches Peter and his mom were connected to was arrested. When I found out, I was totally scared. I was thinking about they're going to have to mention some names. It's because when they're in jail, they might be under the pressure and they say some names. That's why me and my mom decided to change our home. And then change our home. And we were thinking, okay, it's going to be better and better. But it didn't happen. It was upside down. It got worse and worse and worse. One of the building churches in Iran who used to Christian background, people used to go, it was closed again in Iran. Then I decided I am isolated, I, the church has been disbanded, no fellowship. Most of my friends left Iran, and then I decided to leave Iran and came here. This series of Beyond Soundbites was created in collaboration with the Refugee Highway Partnership. If you're listening before September 2018, you can still register for their annual North America event. Before we continue with Peter's story, let's hear a word from Rob Perry. Hi, I'm Rob Perry in Toronto with the Refugee Highway Partnership. On October 24th to 26th in Chicagoland, our 10th annual roundtable will bring together churches, ministries, and individuals from the U.S. and Canada who are supporting forcibly displaced people. Learn more and sign up at rhpna.com. When Peter started believing in Jesus and found community with others who held the same convictions, his sense of identity and belonging shifted. They changed again when he landed in Turkey, registered with various sets of authorities, took on the title refugee, and joined a few million other displaced people there, including 35,000 displaced Iranians. As he explained the immigration and humanitarian systems that enveloped him when he decided to leave Iran and which will now determine his future, He switched back and forth between the pronouns we and they, as if teetering between his current reality and the one he desires. Actually, when the refugees come here, we have to go to register in UNHCR, United Nations in Ankara. Ankara is the capital city of Turkey. So we have to go to register or then they will give us kind of certificate or paper that shows that we are a refugee in here. Then they would say, for example, okay, for the refugees, specific cities are open right now. For example, Nefshahir, I don't know, Adana, that, this, this. Which one do you like to go? If you have some friends, for example, in that town, you would go. If no, you have to go a city by chance or by life. Peter ended up in a city a couple hours from the capital, where he didn't have any close friends or family. So I came here, then I go to the immigration office, then they will give me my ID card as a refugee in here, yeah. But the point is that the Cities that they pick, the UNHCR, the UNHCR is working with the Turkish government. Is that the cities that are, there are many jobs for the refugees, not legal jobs, because of all the jobs for the refugees is illegal because they don't, we don't have a work permission in here. So they consider the cities that the refugees can work in there. There are many job opportunities and the 
cost of the life is really, really cheap. For example, for renting, transportation is really cheap for them, yeah. On paper, all non-Syrian foreigners in Turkey who are seeking asylum or refugee status have the right to work under something called international protection. In practice, however, access to the legal labor market depends on dozens of variables, including the willingness of employers in a person's assigned city to play by the rules. Among Syrian refugees in Turkey, who fall under a different type of protection but are still supposed to have the right to work, only 14,000 of a couple million have received official work permits as of August 2017. The government regulates the movements of non-Syrian refugees and asylum seekers once they reach their assigned city. Peter has to go to the local immigration office every Wednesday and give his fingerprint. He also has to get permission from the government to travel outside his assigned city. You can get permission to travel for medical reasons, he says, but aside from that, it's limited. Otherwise, no, they wouldn't give you permission for vacation. I don't know to go sightseeing, no, not at all. That's why I say that's something I feel I'm really trapped in here and I am in jail. I, I don't know, I feel that it's a, Turkey has been a prison for me. Early on in Turkey, Peter also began his application process to be resettled to the U.S. Since 2005, the U.S. has resettled an average of about 1,600 displaced Iranian Christians each year. Peter knew several who had been through the process, including his mentor. He anticipated it would take two to three years. In the meantime, he had to carry on with life and adjust to a foreign country. In our town, there is a university. I could find a job as a waiter in there, so I started working in there. When I came here, I didn't know Turkish at all, so when the students came, for example, they were ordering, I told them I don't know Turkish, do you know English or something. After a little while, Peter started using the Turkish he had picked up to talk to students at the university about his faith. There was a group of other students, they asked me, what are you doing here, why do you become a refugee? And I said, I'm Christian, I left Iran because of the persecution or something. I couldn't explain them perfectly, and they said that what do Christians believe? What is better? Why Christianity is better than Islam or something? Peter called a friend to help translate his conversations with the students. That friend connected Peter with a Western missionary living nearby named Anthony. A friendship blossomed between Peter, Anthony, and Anthony's team. Over the next three years, Anthony and Peter worked together in ministry. Peter says that having lost his faith community in Iran, the Lord knew he needed good friends during a season of waiting and unknowns. His placement in that city was not by chance after all. The ministry work, he says, gives him a sense of purpose, something to do to fill up the long days and nights while he waits for news about his resettlement application, what he calls his process. It is a lot of work and organizing, but for me it is really, really helpful. Do you know why? Because I'm a refugee in here, days and nights, days and days. I'm at home, not much, not a lot of stuff to do. It's a good distraction to not to think about my process or sometimes, yeah. When I stuck at home, yeah, I just imagine that it's more daunting yet 24 hours a day, just think about my process. When short-term teams come to visit, Peter helps with transportation, arranges meals and visits with other refugee leaders and families, interprets, and helps out as a kind of cultural guide. I am become myself. The days that I have in my country, for example, I used to wake up at 6.30, go to work 7 o'clock, 7.30, until 3 or 4 or 5. And after that, hang out with friends and yeah, come home, take a shower. But in here, no, you don't know when it's... doesn't matter for you, is it night, is it day? Not only for me, for all the refugees.
Take the restlessness and angst that Peter describes. The longing for a normal routine, for a certain future, for feeling like yourself again, and multiply it by 3.9 million. That's the estimated number of displaced people in Turkey as of May 2018. Countries that host large numbers of refugees are meant to provide temporary solutions. They can stabilize people who have fled violence and persecution and help meet basic needs, but getting them on a long-term path to rebuilding their lives is much harder. This is why resettlement to a third country is so important, even if it only happens for less than 1% of refugees registered with the UN. Peter and his mom, who had joined him in Turkey shortly after he got there, were slowly moving through the standard regimen of interviews, phone calls, and information sharing with UNHCR, then the U.S. State Department and its subsidiaries. All the while, the clock was ticking, and another force was about to introduce itself to Peter's journey. Romance. At the beginning of 2016, Peter met Hannah, a woman in her 20s from South Dakota who had come to be part of Anthony's team. They began spending time together, exchanging books, taking walks along the river that ran through the small town where Hannah lived. As she got to know Peter and worked together with him in ministry, the fact that he bore the label refugee was almost an afterthought. A few months into our dating, we um, were participating in like, a ministry trip where students from Minnesota came and were um, interviewing other refugee families. And I went with him like to interview these families and stuff like that. And that was the first time like where I was like, oh, he's a refugee too. Like he's going through all of this stuff that these people are going through too. And it was the first time it really clicked for me. Like, yeah, in those first few months of dating, like I knew that about him, but it just I just didn't think about it. And and yeah, so that was the first time where I was like, oh yeah, he's he's dealing with really hard stuff that I don't understand and I know I don't understand and that was really eye-opening for me, I think. With the guidance and counsel of their team, Peter and Hannah got engaged a year later. Peter was accepted to Bible college in the States where he plans to study ministry. For both of them, the pull of romantic love and the desire to build a life and start a family became intertwined with Peter's process. The refugee process was pretty, like, cut and dry. Like, they kind of knew what to expect and when to expect. It's kind of like every three months there would be another component that would happen to their process, whether it's an interview or medical screening or things like that. And so in December, when he had his last interview, we kind of figured like in March or something, he would get his medical screening scheduled and probably by May or the beginning of the summer, he'd be on the plane to go to America. So we were kind of thinking like that summer to get married. And his mom would be close behind too. She was a little bit farther behind in, in, his, in her process. But um, yeah, so we were thinking that and you know, looking at houses in Minneapolis is where at that point we were wanting to land and things like that. And it was so fun to be able to like think ahead and plan like that. Me and my wife I started looking at, I don't know, the price of the furniture, home appliance, price of a car, if I'm going to buy a you know, second-hand car. In late 2016, Peter completes his second and final interview with an officer from the Department of Homeland Security. He says it was difficult, but stays cryptic about why. She was really tough with me. I cried a lot during my interview because she mentioned some stuff about me, so... But I asked her, please have a grace and mercy on me. I'd like to go and build up my life in there. 
Three weeks later, he called to check on the status and found out he had been approved to resettle in the U.S. All that remained were a medical screening and a few security checks. After four years of limbo in Turkey, after seeing dozens of friends and family members move on ahead of him to Europe, Canada, and America, he was finally ready to build a new home with a woman he loves at his side. A week later, as soon as Trump became a president, I, we got an email from the organization from U.S. government that, okay, you have been deferred, you should wait for a while. There is no time frame for that. A week later, Trump announced his policies about the refugees and immigrants. Peter and his mother's resettlement process was put on hold by Executive Order 13769, protecting the nation from foreign terrorist entry into the United States. President Trump issued the order, popularly known as the travel ban, on January 27, 2017, along with a 90-day suspension on the entry of people from seven majority Muslim countries it also placed the entire U.S. refugee admissions program on hold for a four-month review and improvement period. In the States, protests erupted at airports and public arguments flared across the country. A long court battle over the order became regular in the headlines, and for a time, the media circus raged. Backstage, the same complex gears of the State Department and Homeland Security that brought 85,000 refugees to the U.S. in 2016 began to stutter and slow. With thousands of others, Peter's future was thrown into limbo, and so was Hannah's. We had plans to get married um, in the States with our families and things like that, um, but then the travel ban came in January. We were engaged, but that, yeah, we had no idea what to do. We could wait it out, but at that point, no one knew how long that travel ban would, would last. and. Um, that was hard to not have like a trajectory for dating, like not knowing when the next step will be. And so we just decided to get married in Turkey, which sounds great and exotic and, you know, everything. And it was, it was really, really sweet. But there was a lot of things we had to surrender, like some of my family couldn't come and some of his family couldn't come and things like that too. Um, so it was really sweet and our wedding day and we definitely felt the Lord's presence over us. But there is also that tension of sadness too, like there's just things that didn't happen or yeah, things we had to give up to. That was in May of 2017. Over the next several months, the executive order continued through the courts. As various rulings paused and restarted the policy, modifying exactly who it affected and how, about 450 Iranians, most of whom were religious minorities, did make it to the U.S. through the refugee admissions program. But Peter and his mother were not among them. They continued waiting, hoping, praying for the restrictions to lift. At the beginning, they said, okay, four months. Another law comes, four more months. This eight months over, and they said that three more months for these specific countries. For Peter and Hannah, the kind of sacrifices they had both made when they decided to get married in Turkey continued to demand patience and understanding from both of them. It's been really heavy for her. We both feel really overwhelmed pretty easily. Maybe two times a week or something like that. We cry together. She's far from her family right now, and they're my family too. They miss us a lot. Thanksgiving is coming up. So last year, for Thanksgiving, they were here. Her parents came here to visit me and visit my family here. For Christmas, we are not going to be there. 
we had this argument over um, house plants. Like I really wanted to get house plants for our apartment. I was a new wife. I wanted to make our apartment cozy and whatever. And he kept saying, no, 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 no. And I didn't understand why. And it was this big, big, long, drawn out thing until I understood what was behind that. And I think for him, getting plants, house plants, was a symbol of like, this is our home now, for now. And I mean, if you ask refugees what they need, I think across the board, they would all say, we just want to go, we want to get out, we want to move on, we want to leave Turkey. And to get house plants or whatever, it was a symbol of like, yeah, giving that up almost like, okay, this is our home. And that was really hard for him. On our last day together, Peter gives me a ride on his scooter to visit with his mom, Esther. He lived with her for three years before he and Hannah got married. We get to Esther's building and walk up the staircase. On the way, Peter tells me who lives in each apartment, mostly other displaced families from Iran, Afghanistan, and Syria who have been assigned to that city or migrated there unofficially. Before them, there had been other families who have since moved on to Canada, the U.S., or Australia. With each step we ascend, Peter unspools more of the longing and hope of his family's story, the same thread I had picked up on in his first email months before. We sit down on the two sofas that face each other in the small front room. The windows of Esther's apartment are lined, ironically, with neatly groomed houseplants. Above the doorway, a shelf full of knickknacks, a portrait of Esther and her late husband, a framed picture of Peter's brother standing cross-armed with a cityscape behind them, postcards covered with Farsi script. Peter sees me looking around. This is totally a mom apartment, isn't it, he says, and we laugh. Then Esther shares her testimony as Peter interprets. <laughs> I lost my mother at an early age. Also, I lost my husband too when I was thinking God was punishing me. When I lost my husband, I was all the time trying to do my best for my kids. I became mother and dad for them. I wanted them to have a healthy and successful future. After we moved to Tehran, the kids were continuing going to school, and I attended too. I used to go to the holy shrines and pray to God and give food to poor people. I was trying to persuade God through this stuff. I spent so much time praying and going to holy shrines. Eventually, I went into depression. I started using pills for my depression. I started feeling really lonely, like no one loves me and no one cares about me. In Iran, for ladies who are widows, they face a tough situation. I used to finish my days feeling very sad. Esther shares how she met Jesus, how her life changed after that, and all the circumstances that led to their departure for Turkey. She describes what it was like to be in Turkey at the beginning. Two 
The only thing I was happy about the first couple weeks was that I could go to church easily. I left my relatives, my friends, all the memories I had in Iran. I left them behind and I came here. I was happy because I don't have to cover my Bible with a newspaper anymore. Esther has learned a little Turkish, but Peter still helps with a lot of day-to-day things. The language and cultural differences are hard, but it seems that hardest of all is living with no clear future. In Turkey, we have to crucify our ego every day. We were wealthy in Iran, but now I have to start from zero. The thing that gives me meaning, I tell myself, God is with us, Emmanuel is with us. Sometimes I'm just stuck in my bed. The only thing I can do when I feel like this, I just kneel on my knees and I tell the Holy Spirit, please fulfill me. And God says, stand up, I am here. Last few months we were having a lot of pressure. It was really tough. We believe that God's perfect timing is different from ours. When you view someone through the eyes of his or her parents, It invests that person with a fullness of identity you couldn't see before. This is what happened for me when Peter and I visited with Esther. I saw him as a son loved fiercely by his mother. And that leads us back to the driving idea behind this podcast. All humans who become displaced have a divine parent who created them, knows them, and loves them with a depth we cannot comprehend. The truth of God's love for displaced people, for all people actually. How does it play out when our deepest longings don't match the reality in front of us? How does God meet us in our sorrow? There's one moment when Peter speaks into this question with words that form slowly and seem to come from a place deeper than anything else he's shared in our recorded conversations. He's just finished describing the circumstances that led up to his departure from Iran. Several seconds of silence pass before he speaks again. When I came to Turkey, I think I would say that God totally sharpened me in here. Different. I was a believer in Iran, but I was, I was not, for example, hopeless. Because in Iran, okay, I had the income, I had my car, I had my family. The people who were around me, they used to speak Farsi with me. I didn't care about that. It was my home. But I hadn't experienced the meaning of the faith. I hadn't experienced the meaning of the contact, the word of patience. Hopeful. I didn't know what does it mean. When I came to Turkey, God teach me as a refugee in here. We have been suffering, but God blessed us a lot and helped us a lot to help other people too. When when I see that, actually, the joy comes to my heart and I say, okay, praise God. God needs me in here, I think. And he's using me for now. His time is different from us. He has got the key of the door. As soon as he wants, he will open the door and he can let me go. (laughs) 
Each episode in this series ends with a mini-story, guided by one rule. It must focus on the subject outside that person's narrative of displacement. No bombs, bullets, or borders. When God looks at someone we call refugee, he sees a beloved child whom he created in his likeness and whose identity is rooted in his steadfast love, not in the legal category that person joined when she left her homeland. Those of us who undertake visibility and advocacy efforts for displaced people need to make sure that the questions we ask and the stories we tell help our audience, our subjects, and ourselves to see as God sees. One of the other people who became a part of Anthony's ministry team is an Iraqi man named Hader. Today, I'm in Hader's apartment with Peter and two American guys. The four of them have been doing a Bible study for several months, and they let me tag along today, although we've had two rounds of tea and haven't cracked our Bibles open yet. Hader grew up as a Muslim in Iraq, but he started believing in Jesus after he came to Turkey with his wife and his two daughters. He speaks English well, but he still has gaps in his vocabulary. When he comes across a word he doesn't know, he switches to Arabic, then back to English, and makes a long, circuitous trail of explanations until someone else thinks of it. It's like having a conversation with a raucous game of catchphrase mixed in every few minutes. If language fails, Hader jumps to his feet, makes brisk, hilarious pantomimes, and then returns deadpan to whatever point he was making. Hader's one of the best storytellers I've ever heard. Right now, he's finishing one about trying to purchase sheep testicles for a soup that he wanted to make when they had only been in Turkey for a few months. He hadn't acquired much Turkish yet, he said, so to get his point across, he employed his ostentatious non-verbals with a fanfare that left the old Turkish shopkeeper doubled over on the ground in laughter. Then he moves on to a story about a conflict with an old neighbor back in Iraq. This neighbor had chickens that were always climbing the wall and getting into Hader's backyard. It bothered him a lot, so he asked them many times to deal with it, but they never did anything. So finally he tells his neighbor, Next time I find one of your chickens in my yard, I'm going to kill it. The neighbor apologizes, but sure enough, a few days later, Hader finds not one, but two chickens in his yard. So he kills them, cooks them, asks his wife to invite a couple friends over for dinner. As they're eating the chickens, Hader asks everybody to put the chicken bones in this bag. When dinner's over and the guests leave, he goes to his neighbors, knocks on the door, hands them the bag of bones, and says, Here's your chickens. The story's done, but Hader won't let the conversation move on yet. He's looking back and forth to each of us, his wide eyes, serious, but also full of amusement with himself. He keeps his finger in the air dramatically for several seconds, letting the unspoken moral of the story sink in before he sips again from his cup of steaming tea. All names and some identifying details in these stories were changed or omitted, and participants were informed about how their interviews would be shared. This series of Beyond Soundbites was created in collaboration with the Refugee Highway Partnership North America, a network of churches, ministries, and individuals supporting refugees and asylum seekers across the U.S. and Canada. Other organizational partners include the Refugee Language Program, Exodus World Service, Tucson Refugee Ministry, Local Community Partners, an abounding service. John and Valerie Guerra created the theme music. The rest of the songs are by Chris Dingman. Griffin Jackson was our content editor and story advisor. Brett Ratliff mixed the episodes. We'd love to create another series of episodes that go beyond sound bites in search of the personhood of displaced people, but we need your help. 
Find out how to donate and support at beyondsoundbitespodcast.org. Thank you.